Hello, listeners, and welcome to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I've got a couple of films from Netflix to talk about for you in this episode. We will get started right away, and the first one is an animated movie called Nimona, coming from Annapurna Pictures and Netflix. It stars the vocal talents of Chloe Grace Moretz, Riz Ahmed, Eugene Lee Yang, Francis Conroy, Beck Bennett, RuPaul, Lorraine Toussaint, India Moore, Sarah Sherman, and Julio Torres. It is directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quayne, and it is written by Robert L. Baird and Lloyd Taylor, with a story by Baird, Taylor, Bruno, Quayne, Pamela Rybin, Mark Hames, and Keith Boonin. And it is based on the science fantasy graphic novel Nimona by N.D. Stevenson. Music is by Christoph Beck. It runs 101 minutes and is rated PG for violence and action, thematic elements, some language, and rude humor. What's it about? When a knight in a futuristic medieval world is framed for a crime he didn't commit, the only one who can help him prove his innocence is Nimona a mischievous teen who happens to be a shape-shifting creature he has sworn to destroy. Now, first up, some backstory, either to remind those of you who knew about this in the past, or those of you who may have never heard about this, but Nimona was a film that was being developed originally by Blue Sky Studios. That is the studio that was responsible for the Ice Age series, among other things. And Disney acquired that 34-year-old studio back in 2019 when they acquired the Fox Film Studio and their associated assets. But two years into the acquisition, Disney ended up shutting down Blue Sky Studios. And along with that, production on this animated film. Now, this animated film would have been Disney's first feature-length film with a queer lead. Disney has since, of course, put out Strange World from 2022 that did feature a queer leading character. But this movie was going to have their first ever two male leads kissing, as well as a gender non-conforming lead heroine. Now let's talk about the story, and I'll kind of tell you how that works in. It begins by telling us about the past. This was a peaceful kingdom. There were lurking monsters. One of them attacked. A hero named Glorith vanquishes the monster and establishes an elite force of knights whose descendants would protect the kingdom forever. You flash forward a thousand years later to the setting of our film, and this is a futuristic medieval cyberpunk world drenched in neon, all sorts of technology, but they're knights and they wear armor. And we are present at the main character, Ballister Boldheart's knighting ceremony. He is a street urchin of sorts. He's definitely not of any sort of noble blood. He should not be stepping into the role of a knight, but he has shown extreme aptitude to do so, and the queen is wanting to appoint someone who is outside of the traditional reign of descendants that have previously been knights. Now, he is also romantically involved 
with another knight who is a direct descendant of Glorith, whose name is Ambrosius, and that does factor into the story as well, but more so in the way that the two ended up on different sides of a chase. We're not really diving into their particular relationship. It doesn't seem to be anything that is thought of negatively in this world. However, many of the knights do not accept Ballister simply because of his upbringing and him not being of pure blood. Very traditional kind of story. Something shocking happens at his knighting ceremony. It ends up sending him on the run. He gets framed for a crime that he didn't commit and ends up minus one arm. <laughs> From there, he runs into Nimona. This is a character voiced by Chloe Grace Moretz. She is wonderful. You can tell she is just having a ton of fun. Riz Ahmed voices Ballister Boldheart, and he's very good as well. But Moretz in particular stands out. I think probably because she has the material that is a little bit more bombastic. Her character is all over the place, vocal range, and she is harboring some real pent-up resentment. She is hated because of what she is, this shape-shifting nature. And she has adopted a very metal, punk-like, want-to-break-stuff personality because of that. She ends up being his sidekick, and the lines between who is a hero, who is a villain, what is a monster, those all start to blur, and the two of them end up going on an adventure while being chased, and while the story is slowly revealing its twists and turns to get you to its ending, and hopefully find a way where everyone can peacefully exist. Nimona herself brings up great questions along their journey about things like whether or not the institution that Ballister has put his faith in is worth trusting. She posits that perhaps he is brainwashed because he thinks that the only thing that could have happened is that one single person is responsible for all of this. And she is much more of a character that is pushing back about the status quo and how this world that they're in has kept long-time systems, even at the cost of sacrificing innocence. It's very much a metaphor, okay? So everyone in this city pretty much has never been outside of it. They just have been told that there's a monster that was once defeated, and if a monster shows up, it needs to be put down. There are no questions asked. This is not a new storyline. We've seen this done before. Now, what we haven't seen is, I don't think, is it done in this sort of cyberpunky, medieval, fantastical sci-fi setting, or particularly centered around LGBTQ characters. When it comes to Nimona herself, they do say in interviews that she is meant to be a gender non-conforming character, but that is really never taken anywhere in the script itself. Like, that doesn't come up. It's just a matter of the fact that she can shift into all of these different things, whether it's a boy, a girl, a beast of all different types and sizes. And so it's about being accepted for who she is. And it's all metaphorical when it relates to an LGBTQ lens. The depiction of swords and bows and arrows and how they ride 
hovering vehicles that look like horses. It's all pretty fun. I liked that a lot. The comedy's pretty slapstick for the most part, and there's a lot of kind of hilarious chaos that's hit and miss for me personally. Some of it's just kind of lame, I think more directed towards kids, and then they really want it to be a little heavier hitting when it comes to the commentary as well, so they're treading a thin line there. Animation is cel-shaded. And it kind of falls somewhere between like what you would think of as classical 2D Disney and then like a more modern Pixar or Illumination 3D style. The, one of the directors, Nick Bruno, previously made a movie called Spies in Disguise and has said that the Sword and the Stone influenced this. And I think that that's actually a, a brilliant comparison because it feels to me like a mashup of those two movies when it comes to the animation style. It looks good. I don't think it stands out particularly all the time. There are scenes where it looks really great, particularly the big bad monster. When that is on screen, the way that it is depicted is really awesome. But overall, you know, it looks good. I just didn't find it to be mind-blowing in any way. It's really tough because this is an animation that is coming right on the heels of something like Spider-Verse, which blew us away repeatedly with multiple different animation styles. And this just looks good, not great. As I mentioned, there is some twists and turns. Ultimately, it builds into a pretty touching friendship story all about these characters who have to come to accept each other and are kind of on a mission to change the way that people see them, obviously, for different reasons. But they have found comfort within each other over the course of their adventure. I thought that this was a really good film. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I can see how folks that feel represented by these characters will probably latch onto this and find it to be even more exciting than I did simply because of that. And so that's great. It's nice that we are seeing different styles and different characters brought into this, even if it is a very familiar type of tale that we're seeing told. It's a good movie. I think Netflix has been on a run of putting out really solid animation over the last several years. And this is there. It's not nearly as empty and shallow as some of the traditional Western studio big animated flicks like a Minions or some of those franchises. So I'll take it every time over something like that. Nimona will be streaming on Netflix on June the 30th. You can check it out there. The next Netflix film is Extraction 2. It stars Chris Hemsworth, Golshifte Farahani, Tornike Gagriciani, Adam Bessa, Daniel Bernhardt, Tinatine Dalakashivili, and Olga Kurilenko. It is directed by Sam Hargrave and is written by Joe Russo, also based on a graphic novel called Ciudad by Ande Parks. Cinematography is by Greg Baldi. Music is by Henry Jackman and Alex Belchi. It runs 122 minutes and is rated R for strong, bloody violence throughout and language. What's it about? After barely surviving his grievous wounds from his mission in Dhaka, Bangladesh, Tyler Rake is back. 
and his team is ready to take on their next mission. I love how completely non-detailed that synopsis is. So I get to actually tell you a little better about what this is. The plot, this is an action movie. It is not there to be very deep. It is there to drive the action. And that is what it does. Quick recap on Extraction 1. So if you haven't seen Extraction 1, skip ahead maybe like a minute, 30 seconds or a minute, and you should be fine. Basically, Tyler Rake was thought to be dead, but he has been recovered safely, and he is in the process of healing up from his wounds after saving a young boy who was kidnapped by a rival drug lord. He harbors this feeling of trying to make up for the fact that he left his own son and his wife when his son got sick with cancer. And we don't really know the details around that, but we come to find them out a little more in Extraction 2. It starts off with Tyler recovering from his wounds. He comes back from the dead, essentially, and is nursed to health by his friends and miraculous medicine. He ends up being very brooding and miserable. He thinks a lot about his past and the son that he left. And then one day, a mysterious financier for an unnamed organization arrives and offers him a job. What else can Tyler do? There's nothing else he knows. He takes the job. There's also a personal connection for the reason that he takes the job, and he commits to getting back into shape. He starts working out. He goes through uh, what is a very fun homage to a sports movie training sequence as he is starting to get himself ready. And then he teams back up with Nick and Yaz, the brother and sister friends of his, gets his team together and embarks on the mission. The mission is to extract a family from a prison. The villain of this film, I wouldn't say is extremely defined. There are two brothers that we learn grew up in the Balkans area and ended up dealing drugs to survive. They became powerful gangsters. One of them, who has the family, is in prison, and the other is trying to make sure he is protected and wanting to get him out. Once Tyler goes in to accomplish an extraction, things go sideways, of course, and this villain goes on a rampage of revenge. That really seems to be most of the motivation for him. He does have some half-cocked religious fanaticism about him, but it's not really explored in any sort of way that felt meaningful. And I'm not sure why they gave him that trait at all, other than to try and find a reason for him to be motivated to this revenge, or I guess a way for him to perhaps feel like he was convinced that it was a glorified choice that he was making. But like most bad guys, it's all about maintaining control and punishing your enemies. That is really what he's there for which makes it fun for our hero to see someone hopefully punching him in the face and or shooting him with lots and lots of bullets. This is an action movie, and that is what you're going to get. 
early on in the film, when this extraction is happening, it is an incredibly dynamic, long sequence. The camera is bouncing around to show different point of views as the fight goes on. There are guns, knives, grenades, hand-to-hand combat. There's a shovel being used. It's absolutely just phenomenal. The whole sequence goes on about 25 minutes. And included in that 25 minutes is a specific 14-minute long one-take scene. It is right there with the top-down set piece in John Wick 4 as the best action of the year. I was absolutely stunned watching it. I've seen it twice now. And the choreography of this thing is just absolutely staggering to see play out. Uh, it's, It's a joy. It is an action junkie's best possible candy. So, so much fun. It goes from on foot to in vehicles to trains. We've got helicopters. You've got, you know, small weapons and arms. You've got big guns. Just everything you can imagine as this thing continually escalates and escalates and escalates. It's a heck of a way to start the movie. And by the half point of the movie, you have already gotten to experience this set piece and you're just all in and waiting for more. And that's what you get. It's not just all about Tyler this time around, though. You've got his mercenary team against this exceptionally well-trained group of enemy gangster fighters. We do hop around so we don't stay in the Middle East or the India. We go to Georgia and then there is another big action set piece that takes place in Vienna. The pacing is much better than Extraction 1, in my opinion. I really enjoyed the dramatic parts. Some of the dialogue is extremely hit and miss in this. I don't think that writing a script is Joe Russo's strong point, but it's fine. We do get character development about Tyler's history with his ex-wife and his son, and I, I got a little emotional a time or two. Uh, But, you know, again, it's the action. It's all about what we are watching on screen. It is so kinetic. It is so fantastic. Sam Hargrave, you know, a former stunt person himself, he has crafted something that stands right alongside the work that Chad Stahelski has been doing in the John Wick series. And I'm here for it. You know, this is a series that goes from something like a mix of John Wick and Man on Fire uh, and into something where this character is becoming a legend and he is hired for this job because of people having heard of his incredible tale of survival and what he was able to do. It ends with him possibly in line to keep going. I know this is you know, based on a graphic novel, like I mentioned. So I'm not surprised that this is something that they would want to continue to evolve and continue to explore. This is something you can absolutely serialize. And if the action stays this good, I think it's just different enough character wise from something like John Wick that it can absolutely exist alongside it. The other big difference between the two series is that I think Chris Hemsworth's fighting in this 
it's so much more raw than something you see in John Wick. John Wick is very superhero-esque. Like, he is just so far above and beyond the skill level that they're just buckets of enemies that get mowed down left and right by him over and over and over. Whereas I think Tyler Rake feels more like a special operative than he does an assassin, which is what he is. And for my money, you know, I I think, again, both can exist and I will be here day one to watch them. If you are lucky enough to see Extraction 2 in theater, I highly recommend it. Cinematography is fantastic. The musical score is great. It will look awesome, awesome, awesome on a big screen and be a total blast with a full theater that is just geeking out over the camera work in these action set pieces. If not, Extraction 2 will be streaming on Netflix on June 16th for pretty much everybody. And I highly recommend checking it out. Well, that's it for this week's new release review episode of FF Plus. Hopefully I've given you some information that will help your decision making. As always, if you do see any of the films that I talk about, find me on social media and let me know. I'd love to know what you think. There are links to all of my accounts in the show notes to each and every episode. And if you didn't get a chance to already, be sure and listen to the earlier episode from this week. I had three fellow colleagues from the Hollywood Critic Association on to talk about our top five films so far of 2023. It was a lengthy and extremely expansive conversation where a lot of movies get mentioned, a lot of different takes, and had a really good time. And I think it will put some amazing films on your radar for the rest of the year, as well as celebrate some that hopefully you've already gotten a chance to see. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling. Thank you.